title of the message this week is What is Truth? The Lord gave us one of the most Pentecostal phrases, probably the most popular one. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sounds better if you can say what it did. Except when you're old, you do that dip, you may not get up out of that dip. So we'll refrain from that. The problem is cynical men like Pilate continually ask the question, what is truth? I don't believe it was sarcastic. I believe it was cynical. Pilate was aware of the various philosophies of man and the Greek philosophers, etc. And he dismissed them as foolish. There's no practical value. To him, truth was relative. It was the sole possession of those who were in power. When it talks about you will know the truth. That's talking about knowledge. And actually, knowledge can be the greatest hindrance to learning, to finding the truth. The knowledge of man is subjective, and it's severely limited. What one man holds to be true, another dismisses as delusion. I believe and declare that there is a God, and that those who do not believe in him are deluded. Of course, those who do not believe in God see me as the deluded one. We can't both be right. A belief in what is true does not change the existence or the very nature of truth. Truth stands independent whatever you or I believe about it. The quest for knowledge has caused some great division among those who are created in the image and likeness of God. We have an interesting process when we accept knowledge. Once knowledge is acquired and accepted as truth, we store it. We put it in a box, put the box lid on top, put it on a shelf close the door, and we don't visit it again. It's called compartmentalization. We don't visit it anymore because we know. I know. Even when empirical knowledge, things that we can see or hear or touch or smell or taste, contradicts what we believe we know, we dismiss it. We ignore it because it contradicts what we know. This is true in science, the, na the study of the natural creation, <laughs> as well as in the realm of faith, the study of the creator. Cosmology, physics, quantum mechanics, the medical arts have all proven that the knowledge that was held to be true by scientists in the past was incomplete or totally inaccurate. And the changes in these scientific disciplines came slowly and often 
exacted a high price from those who departed from what was generally accepted as truth. In the realm of faith, individuals who departed from that which was generally accepted thinking on God were very often persecuted, isolated, and again quite often murdered. They died for, for, for their disagreements. This is true throughout the history of polytheism, Judaism, Christianity, and of course, Islam. Further, once the threats from outside their ranks was quelled, those who deviated from the official version of the truth within the ranks also felt the wrath of the, of the prevailing religious authorities. And this is true in all religions. We all resist changes to what we know to be true. It's just what happens. The one who overcomes that resistance has a teachable spirit. The one who cannot has difficulty coming to a knowledge of the truth. We have to be willing to learn because we are mostly ignorant. John chapter 9 reveals this condition in scripture, one of many places. Yeshua is speaking to a gathering of people and he tells them that those who hear the truth of his words and reject him are blind. Now within this group there were many teachers of Israel, Pharisees, doctors of the law, and they arrogantly reply to Yeshua's statement, are we blind also? You wise. Oh, they thought themselves wise. We blind also? Yeshua's response, since you say you see, your sin remains. In other words, since you say you know, you're guilty. If you know, if you knew Moses, you would know me. I was the one who spoke to Moses. Every parent has experienced this exchange. Some parents more than others. You watch your child trying to do something and they're doing it wrong. The way they're going about doing it is not going to accomplish what they want to accomplish and in fact may actually be dangerous and you try to show them the right way to do it. What is the typical response? I know. Most kids have their first word is no. My son's first word was no too, but it's, it was spelt with a K. I know. And every time he would tell me that, I'd, I'd just stare and stare at him. Did Sylvia drop you on your head when you were a child? If you know the right way, why are you doing it the wrong way? I, I couldn't. And then, of course, the Lord would show me how many times I did exactly the same thing after he told me the right way. And I chose the wrong way. Knowledge and wisdom is not the same thing. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Adam sought the knowledge of good and evil. 
Ironically, he had to do evil in order to acquire that knowledge. God told him not to eat, and he ate. That was evil. And the wisest of men, of men came to understand this paradox. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And what he heard when he said that was a resounding amen from Adam. Further, those who have acquired much knowledge oftentimes see themselves as wise. A little pride starts to come up. I have a doctorate, I have a master's, I have studied for this But having acquired a lot of knowledge doesn't make you wise. It just ain't necessarily so, as Solomon learned. And if that knowledge produces a pride, one no longer has a teachable spirit. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for the fool than for him. He can't learn. A truly wise man understands these two eternal truths. Man's knowledge is partial, it is incomplete, and secondly, ignorance grows every time one learns something new. You learn a fact, and that grows arithmetically, but it opens up a vast field of knowledge that you're ignorant of. And so your ignorance grows geometrically. When I was young, I was taught that the cell was the basic and very simple mechanical process, biological process, and was the building block of life. It, we were just this amalgamation of cells, very simple operation basically turning food into energy. And with the advent of more powerful microscopes that could peer through the layers, our ignorance was revealed and we found the cell to be a vast universe that we knew very little about. Microbiology has opened up new worlds for us to study. And the cell is far away from being simple, basic, quite complex. This is true of God as well. A single piece of information, a single piece of knowledge reveals a new area of God's face that was previously hidden. A vast unknown landscape that one must now take the time to explore and to learn about. I found out a single piece of information, and what was revealed to me was an entire universe that I knew nothing about. In the end of days, the scriptures prophesied that mankind will have great access to knowledge. It doesn't say wisdom, it's knowledge. Daniel chapter 12, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And the visual there is that uh, people just running in every single direction, pure chaos, acquiring various pieces 
of information and knowledge. But that knowledge does not necessarily result in wisdom. Knowledge does not become truth simply because you believe it to be true. There is a false knowledge, and the scriptures call it delusion. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, because they did not love the truth, God sent strong delusion that they might believe a lie. Now, they believe the lie to be true. We hear it every day on the TV, on the radio, in conversations. You hear people state a truth that they believe and know is true. And you're looking at them going, how do you make it home from the store? How can you possibly believe this? They do. That lie is described by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In the last days, terrible times will come. The men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, without a love of good. Certainly a case can be made that we are presently living in such times. I'm reminded of the man who married himself. He literally fulfilled his verse. He was a lover of himself. Violence and brutality threatened to consume all of mankind at this point. The wise man seeks to increase a very specific knowledge, very narrow piece of knowledge, a knowledge of the truth, the truth revealed by God. One of the most influential men in my life was an art teacher in college. And he told the class, when you begin to sculpt something, set your first idea aside. Just put it off to the side. Don't even think about it. And search for something new. You may come back to it, but first set it to the side. Start looking for something different. Go past what you see first in your mind and what you know how to construct. Search for something you have never seen before and then figure out how to build it. In other words, learn. Expand. Grow. This simple wisdom opened my eyes to see. I stopped looking for specific things and began to look more closely at those things that actually surround me, and the world became a far more interesting place, a place of wonder. I was no longer looking for something specific. I was now just observing what was there, and my eyes saw a great deal more. I have applied this wisdom to the Word of God. When I, when I read Scripture, I set aside everything I know about a passage, and I read it as if it is the first time. 
I discard the things that I have deduced about those words. I discard the things that I have been taught about that passage. And I look at it for what it says. What does God's word say? And this allows me to see things I previously missed, I previously ignored, just read over, read past. And this has helped me to understand the diverse manifestations of God. <clears throat> no one has seen the fullness of God. It is impossible for a mind that is finite to comprehend the vastness of the eternal God. We can't. We can't. He has no borders. He has no ends. And so we cannot get our mind around him because the eternity can't be gotten around. It, it doesn't end. It goes on forever. The request to see God's face by Moshe was denied. For God would not give him more than he could bear. He showed Moshe a portion of himself. Only his goodness passed before him in Exodus chapter 33. The same God that revealed his, his goodness, his mercy, and his grace to Moshe at Sinai would also reveal his wrath at a later point on a mountain that overlooked the promised land. In God's wrath, Moshe was not allowed to enter into the promised land, Israel. The reason was he hit the rock instead of speaking to it. Seems trivial, doesn't it? I mean, okay, so I struck the rock. There's another eternal truth revealed in the New Covenant. Seek not many of you to be teachers. You will incur a stricter judgment. Somebody else, maybe this would have been overlooked. Not so with Moshe. He is Moshe Rabbeinu. The great teacher was not overlooked with him. Paul gives us a little insight. That rock was Mashiach in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. The rock was Yeshua. And he struck Yeshua instead of speaking to him. The various manifestations of God are actually alluded to in the watchword of Israel's faith. Translated as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that is not a literal translation of the Hebrew. Eloheinu is in the form of possessive plural. Like if if I have horses, and I own a number of horses, the word horse would be susim, like Elohim. Susim, I have horses. But if you and I own horses, the word there would be susenu, our horses, like Eloheinu. Eloheinu means our gods, literally. And literally, this, the Shema reads this way, Israel, hear or understand the Lord our gods, 
The Lord is one. That's the literal reading of the Hebrew. Now, this does not suggest that there is more than one God. Rather, there is one God who has chosen to manifest himself in his creation and to man in various different ways. And often those ways seem utterly different. Sometimes he is gracious and compassionate. Sometimes there is wrath and anger. Sometimes he's loving. Sometimes he's jealous. And each one of those gods behaves, if you will, differently. But all of these diverse manifestations are still divine. It's still the same God. New Testament scholars have been quick to suggest a dichotomy in God, almost like there was two gods. They tell us that the, in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath. And in the New Testament, God is a God of love. This theology is developed, one of the primary verses, from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And more specifically, verse 17. For the law was given through Moshe, grace and truth were realized through Yeshua HaMashiach. But this thinking ignores one word that is found in the previous verse, verse 16. In Yeshua was the fullness of grace and truth realized. Did God not reveal himself as love and grace at Sinai? when he revealed his name to Moshe, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moshe and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. In Hebrew, it's Abba, abounding in love and truth. That's what passed before Moses. God did not appear as love and truth only in the New Covenant. He appeared to Moshe that way also. The sacrificial system revealed love, given to restore our relationship with God when we did evil in his sight. The wages of sin is death, but God loved man. And so he provided something else to die in his place so that he would not have to die. It is John 3.16, For God so loved the world, and he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yeshua was the fullness of that sacrifice. We are still under, as I've said a hundred times before, the sacrificial system, we are covered by the blood of the sacrifice of Yeshua. We just don't have to make sacrifice anymore because he made that sacrifice once and for all. His death atoned for all the sins of all men once and for all. 
Conversely, is there no wrath revealed in the new covenant? Ananias and Sapphira might argue that point. They died because they lied about how much they gave. That seems like such a minor infraction, especially when compared to Peter, who denied the Lord three times in one night. He didn't die. Why did Ananias and Sapphira die? I have no idea. But I accept it. For God is a righteous judge. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not righteous. The thief who hung on the cross next to Yeshua, who was not found with Yeshua in paradise, he might also argue that point. He felt the wrath while the other gentlemen felt the love and the grace of the Lord. Yeshua refers to the teachers in Israel who were wise in their own estimation. He calls them a brood of vipers, whitewashed sepulchers, child of hell. Does Yeshua not reveal the eternal habitation of those who do not walk in his ways? It's a place of wrath. It's, an, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The author of Hebrews concludes in chapter 10, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God without the covering of Yeshua. And in Hebrews chapter 12, that author makes a reference to the sons of Aharon. And he declares, God is a consuming fire. The same consuming fire that consumed the sons of Aaron when they made a strange smoke, a different kind of smoke that could not cover the glory of the God that appeared to them. And they were consumed by that presence. The same God who revealed himself in the Tanakh revealed himself in the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant. He has not changed by his own words in Malachi chapter 3. I am the Lord. I do not change. Of course, man's knowledge and understanding of these various manifestations of God appears to be in a constant state of flux. We flip-flop. We focus on one manifestation and put it above a different God is God of love. He doesn't punish you. He's not going to punish you. Conversely, again, there's, there's denominations that focus on God of wrath. God is an angry God, jealous God. You stay home from church on Sunday to watch a football game, you're going to hell. Go ahead, laugh. I was told that. man came here and asked me if he was going to hell. And his pastor had told him he was going to hell because he stayed home from church on Sunday and watched the football game. I said, well, that wasn't an intelligent decision, but I don't think it's worthy of hell. Did your team win? I'm a curious sort. 
Every manifestation of God reveals a portion of his fullness, a portion of his presence. But no individual manifestation encompasses the totality of God. God is greater than the sum of his manifestations. However, there is one common divine trait revealed in every manifestation of God in this physical creation, ultimate power. He is first seen as Bore, the creator, the one who spoke the creation into existence. And immediately we can conclude a number of things from this introduction to God. He existed prior to this physical creation. And his words possessed the power of pure genesis, creation from nothing. He spoke, and whatever he said came into being. He created the laws that govern the, existent, the existence and movement of this creation, what we call the laws of physics, were manifest at the very moment that things became physical. I've dealt with this many times over the years, and I won't get back into it now, but as creator, God has declared himself to be Hamelech, a different manifestation, king over what he created. And as a king, he has to have a kingdom. Can't be a king without a kingdom. Okay, I didn't do this, but I got to do it. So there's this old joke, and the young, the young rabbi comes to the old rabbi, and he says, Rabbi, I had a dream. No, so tell me the, the dream. I had a dream that I was, a, I was the rabbi of a congregation of 500. And the rabbi says, come back when 500 have a, a, a dream that you are their rabbi. But I digress. It's a good joke, though. I had to get it in there somehow. As a king, he has a kingdom, a malchut, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he sure references the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven quite often in the scriptures. And he uses various analogies and similes and metaphors and, and illustrations to try to give us some concept of what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. But none of those analogies, similes, or metaphors of what the kingdom is, it's what the kingdom is like. In truth, heaven is like, unlike anything we have experienced on this earth. Nothing like it. Revelation 21. We've come out of the millennial kingdom of the Lord, a thousand-year reign of Yeshua on earth. We have stepped into eternity, and we're given a description. There's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Who has experienced this in the history of mankind outside Adam and Chava? Outside the Garden of Eden, 
No man has experienced what is described in Revelation 21 and 22. So of course we have to use analogies. What is it like? Is there anything like this? When I was a kid, my mother had to tell me not to stare at the sun and not to look at an eclipse with a naked eye because uh, in Brooklyn, the genius young children produced a game called Sun Stare. And the one who won was the one who could stare at the sun the longest. He now wears really thick glasses. He won. We're told that the light from the sun will destroy our eyes. It is more than we can bear. This is also true of the light of God's presence. In Psalm 36, verse 9, in his light do we see light. When we come into the presence of God, what do we see? As with Moses, we can only come into a portion of his presence. With the fullness of God's life, light would consume us. It consumes everything that is physical. Look at the appearances of God and what happens to the physical creation. There's earthquakes and fires and lightnings and thunders. The physical creation is coming undone. God might reveal his great love for us when he appears. His grace and his mercy. At other times, his wrath looms over us and we fear. At times, we might be able to see the beauty of the Lord in his temple when we worship him. At other times, we shrink in fear, feel completely inadequate when we come into his presence. Have you not experienced this in your own life? There have been times that I've come into God's presence and have been embraced. He's held me close. I have felt the caress of his hand, a gentle word. There are other times it was not a caress of his hand I felt. It was a smack upside the head. And I was afraid, for I knew I had done wrong in his sight. There is some, there is some natural light that is visible to the naked eye. The visible spectrum of light is rather narrow, and it's made up of various frequencies which, when combined, produce white light. A prism will separate the white light into the various frequencies that we perceive as color. Every manifestation of God reveals a different aspect of his being. It's like looking at God's light through a prism. We don't see the fullness of his light, for it would consume us. We see a portion of it. And that reveals a portion of God. God is certainly love. God is also wrath. 
God is a wind, but he has manifested himself to man in the fullness of time as a man, Yeshua. God is light, but he dwells in a thick cloud, an fell, a thick cloud of darkness. To achieve some level of understanding about God, we must try to integrate all these manifestations into a unified whole. In, his, in the last manifestation of God in creation, he put on flesh, and he walked amongst us, and we beheld the glory of God in our midst, full of grace, full of truth. A vision of beauty. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Yeshua is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. One day we shall see the Lord in his fullness, and on that day all these manifestations of God will join together, and we will see him as he is, and we shall behold the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah, and they will be one. They may have come twice, but they will be one. Zechariah 14 envisions a time when the nations of the earth will embrace the Lord God of Israel as king. And it will happen at Sukkot. It's one of the reasons we quote from Zechariah 14 at Sukkot. And in verse 9, the words are, And in that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. We're given a glimpse of this vision fulfilled in Revelation chapter 19. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He's the only one who knows his name. At his return, we will know that name. We will declare it, and we will speak it, and we will worship it. That day is closest hand in my thinking. As this world unravels before our eyes, as delusion is seen as truth, and truth as delusion. As good is called evil, and evil is called good. Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Soon we're going to hear that great shofar blast. And behold the one who comes in the clouds. And then we will all know the truth. And we will be free. I believe that'll happen at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Every day. I got two shots at being right. Father, in Yeshua's name, all honor and glory to you for the promise that this is not all there is. 
there is a glorious end. At the when we reach the end of this road, there is a glorious moment. And we'll finally behold your face in fullness. We will worship you for all eternity, Lord. You alone are worthy. Open our eyes that we might see, our hearts that we might hope, and our souls that we might hear. Keep us on a path of righteousness in these times, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen.